Well, good morning, everyone. Would you bow your head with me once more in prayer? Our gracious and faithful and loving and merciful Father, uh, we thank you for this time that we get to spend uh, in this building publicly, uh, getting into your word and looking at what you have said to your church. God, this morning, um, it probably goes without saying that someone or some persons here will bump up against Jesus in this word that he gives in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, but I pray, Lord God, for your help, not only for us as we listen, but for me as I preach. Lord, give us ears to hear. Remind us of your grace and mercy, the fact that you have covered our iniquities and sins, uh, that you are for us and not against us. Uh, Lord, you have come to unsettle us for redemptive purposes, for your good purposes, to get us to move with the grain of the universe that you have created. And so I pray that we would remember these things and that you would be Lord over your text and speaking to us, uh, as Jonathan said earlier, may I decrease now as you increase in this hour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. During the earthly lifetime of Jesus Christ, there were two primary rabbinical schools that were the most influential rabbinical schools in Israel. One was the school of the Jewish scholar Shammai, and the other was the school of the Jewish leader Hillel. So Shammai and Hillel. Of these two schools, the school of Shammai was the more conservative school of biblical interpretation. Shammaiites took a fairly strict and sort of unyielding literal approach on matters of interpretation, while the, the school of Hillel, on the other hand, was more flexible and we might even say liberal in their interpretation of Scripture. So, just to review, Shammai, more conservative, Hillel, more Flexible. Generally speaking, what we notice in the teachings of Jesus is that he aligned more with the flexible school of Hillel than he did with the more strict literal school of Shammai. That school of Shammai was more the territory of the Pharisees, and Jesus, of course, denounced the Pharisees on more than one occasion. However, friends, there was at least one matter where Jesus agreed much more with the conservative school of Shammai than he did with the more liberal school of Hillel, and that was on the matter of divorce and remarriage. Jesus took a rigorously conservative position on this matter. In his teaching, Jesus radically limited the grounds for divorce, whereas the school of Hillel had been extremely lax and very loose on that matter. They allowed almost any reason 
as a grounds for divorce, and many of those reasons for divorce were extremely ridiculous. And we'll get to that very shortly here. But now, in the moment when Jesus was standing on the mountain preaching the Sermon on the Mount, there had been a lively debate raging in Israel. A debate between the more conservative school of Shammai and the more liberal school of Hillel, and the the debate concerned a specific Old Testament text that directly addressed the matter of divorce. The text was Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And the main focus of the debate concerned the Hebrew phrase, Devar Erwa in verse 1, which translates in our English Standard Version as some indecency. In the King James Version, it translates as some uncleanness. And in the Common English Bible, it translates as something inappropriate. The Deuteronomy passage said that a man was permitted to divorce his wife if he found some indecency or something inappropriate in her. And the question that was hotly debated by the schools of Shammai and Hillel was the question, how do we understand the content of that little phrase? What did it mean? The school of Shammai, the more conservative school, wanted to limit the content of the phrase to adultery. They interpreted the Deuteronomy passage as saying that the only grounds whereby a man could divorce his wife is if he discovered that she had committed adultery. But the school of Hillel, on the other hand, wanted to interpret that phrase, some indecency, much more broadly. And it was the school of Hillel that was winning the day in the time of Jesus Christ. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Charles Quarles gives an excellent summary of just how liberal and how ridiculous the advocates of Hillel had become in the time of Jesus on the matter of grounds for divorce. Advocates of the Hillel school essentially argued that any old reason was a good enough reason for a man to divorce his wife. Now, I want to read you the summary that Quarles gives of the grounds that they found acceptable for divorce. It's a rather long quote, but I think it's worth working through it. So here goes. Quarles writes, A man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped, turnip-shaped, or hammer-shaped, or if her head was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat at the back. I'm not kidding. It gets better. He could divorce his wife if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. This is all in the rabbinical writings. 
The condition of her eyes was particularly important. If she had eyes too high or too low, if she were cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes, or eyes big as a calf or small like a goose. Any of these justified divorce. The man could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, her ears too little or too floppy, if she had an overbite or underbite, missing teeth, a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, oversized or damaged sexual organs, a dark complexion, bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she were bow-legged, suffered from swelling of the big toe, if her heel had protrusions, if the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she were ambidextrous. A man could divorce his wife if she ate something he had forbidden her to eat, if she visited the home of her parents, or if, against her husband's wishes, the in-laws moved into the same city to be near their daughter. The husband had the right to divorce his wife if she broke the law, laws of Moses or if she transgressed a Jewish custom by going outdoors with her hair unbound, spun cloth in the street, or spoke to any man other than her husband. She would also be divorced if she cursed her husband's parents or yelled at her husband so loud that her voice could be heard outside the house. A man could divorce his wife if she had a bad reputation, if she burned his supper, <laughs> or if he simply found someone that he thought was prettier. Not offering sexual relations frequently enough was also grounds for divorce. Close quote. Wow. Now, to make matters even more lax, to make matters even worse, if a man wanted to divorce his wife during this time, all he needed to do was to act in a unilateral way. No court proceeding or court decision was necessary. The man simply had to just simply get a certificate of divorce written up, give it to his wife, and that was that. You can make a strong argument then, can't you, that the lax and popular and permissive interpretation of the Deut Deuteronomy 24 passage as handed down by the school of Hillel, served to basically gut the institution of marriage. Divorce became way too laughably easy. Marriage was losing meaning by the hour. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus does not side with the school of Hillel. Jesus, as he does throughout this section of his sermon, sides with the spirit of Torah. He is in alignment with the actual and true spirit 
of the debated Deuteronomy 4 text. A text, we need to notice, which actually restricted divorce. It did not encourage divorce. One of the cardinal points of the Deuteronomy text was actually to give an Israelite man a great caution if he was considering divorcing his wife. God in that passage said effectively, don't divorce in a hasty fashion because if you divorce your wife and she remarries, you will never again regain her. It's true that there was a permission, a permission in that Deuteronomy text for divorce. Yes, there was. But only, and I want you to listen carefully, only because of the hardness of human hearts did God grant such a permission. The text in question question actually put restrictions on divorce. It did not encourage the free-for-all that the school of Hillel had been promoting. They simply got it wrong. And Jesus now will set things straight in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Let's go to our text, finally, after all of that background. Now, friends, I want to preface our exploration of this, this text on the subject of divorce and remarriage by saying a couple of things. First, at the level of the text itself, we need to understand that it is a virtual powder keg of complicated issues and tender issues. I think if it weren't for the fact that we have committed to working through the entire Sermon on the Mount, line by line, passage by passage, my tendency would be to avoid preaching on this passage. Whenever a preacher preaches on the subject of divorce and remarriage, it's bound to be a somewhat controversial Sunday. And so I know that in preaching this text that I'm entering into deep waters. I know that. The best I I can hope to do in this single sermon, God being my helper, is to just bring a sliver, a sliver of clarity concerning how Jesus viewed divorce and remarriage. I'm not setting out in this sermon to solve all the hot-button issues, neither will I address every issue attached to this subject. My modest hope today is just to bring a tiny amount of clarity to you concerning Jesus' view of divorce and remarriage as he presents it here in this sermon. Okay? And I know that many in this room have experience with divorce. Either personally, yourself, or you've walked with a loved one, or you've walked with a friend as that person or or persons went through a divorce. You know that much hurt and much suffering are attached to the subject of divorce. The topic is one that hits raw nerves. With many people, my intention here today is not to exacerbate or rub salt into any raw wounds. Rather, my intent is simply to come under the word of God and direct us to Jesus and to his words on this subject, knowing 
that Jesus desires to redemptively address every aspect of our lives, even those aspects that may be painful. All right, to the text of Scripture. Now, since verse 21 of Matthew 5, just to recap here, since verse 21, Jesus has been working through what we might call case studies in God's law. So beginning at verse 21, Jesus took the sixth commandment and taught on the spirit of that sixth commandment. And then beginning down in verse 27, Jesus worked the seventh commandment. Now at verse 31, he'll reference that Deuteronomy 24 passage that we've already talked about. He says in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now Jesus is alluding here to Deuteronomy 24.1 and 24.2 where the certificate of divorce is mentioned twice. But in the context of Jesus standing there on the mountain in the first century, with that debate raging between the two rabbinical schools of thought, most likely what Jesus is doing here in verse 31 is he's saying, everybody seems to think that it's the certificate of divorce that is the main thing. That the certificate of divorce is really all you need to produce in order to divorce. The reason for the divorce seems less important to so many people. It's the certificate that has become the most important thing. Well, Jesus is saying here, I'm here to tell you that things are different. Verse 32. Now, you know when you watch YouTube videos, some of you do, and say... There's somebody on the screen who's dancing very happily to some music that's playing. But then they look out the window and they see something startling. And the music suddenly grinds to a halt with that screech sound of a needle on vinyl. You know that sound? It's the best imitation I could do. That screech sound is more or less what happens in verse 32. Jesus abruptly stops the music that the Hillel crowd had been enjoying. The needle scratches the vinyl here. Jesus shows in rather sudden fashion that he sides much more with the conservative Shammai school on the matter of divorce than he does with those of Hillel. Again, paraphrasing Jesus in 31, he's just said, Yeah, there's that certificate of divorce that everybody seems to think is the prime necessity to get a divorce. You can just divorce for any reason, apparently, as long as you have the certificate in place. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, 
Let's tread carefully through what Jesus says in this verse. And pray for the Spirit's help here. First of all, in the most general terms, what Jesus is doing in verse 32 is he's directly challenging the loosey-goosey interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 that the Hillel school had been promoting. Jesus here is not only expressing his divine disagreement, his divine disagreement with frivolous divorce, cavalier divorce. He's also labeling that frivolous or cavalier divorce as a clear transgression of the seventh commandment. The essential point, the most basic point that Jesus is making in verse 32, and we need to grasp this, is that marriage, in his divine estimation, was much more of a hallowed, sacred thing than the Hillel school was picturing it to be with their laxity. For Jesus Christ... Marriage between a man and a woman was to be a lifelong union. A marriage was certainly not to be undone lightly. I find it so instructive over in Matthew 19 that when the Pharisees come to Jesus in that chapter asking Jesus a question about grounds for divorce, Jesus decides not to give them a direct answer. Instead, Jesus launches into a little sermon on the permanent nature of marriage from the perspective of God that had been given in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Jesus saw and Jesus believed as he read his Old Testament that marriage was never to be broken. It was designed to be a lifelong covenant commitment. In the Matthew 19 passage, he makes it clear to the Pharisees that the only reason that God permitted divorce, he clarifies that because the Pharisees come and think that God commanded divorce. He says, no, it's permitted, not commanded. The only reason, he says, that God permitted divorce was because of the sclerocardia, the heart sclerosis, the hardened hearts of human beings. From the beginning, marriage was designed as a covenant never to be broken, a lifelong commitment, and that's a massive part of what Jesus is stressing in our passage in verse 32. Okay, but now let's look at some of the details of verse 32. Are you with me? Let's look at verse 32 together. I want us to take careful note of the flow of this verse. Now concentrate with me here. Notice the flow. Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife, and then immediately after that phrase, he gives a second phrase that intervenes into the flow of what he's just said. Again, everyone who divorces his wife, and then comes the intervening phrase, except on the ground of sexual immorality, and then after that intervening phrase, he continues the flow when he says, 
makes her commit adultery. The intervening phrase, except on the ground of sexual immorality, gives us, listen, the sole only ground in terms of this verse, the only permission for a divorce in terms of this verse. What Jesus says here in Matthew 5.32, and we're concentrating right now just on this verse. Okay, I'm stressing that. What he says here is that any other ground for divorce, aside from sexual immorality that has been discovered in one of the partners, is an invalid ground for divorce. So Jesus is ripping the rug out from under the school of Hillel who found just about any reason as a valid reason for divorce. Now, friends, hang with me here because we'll touch on the issue of biblical grounds for divorce a little bit later. But looking only at Matthew 5.32, which we are right now, Jesus says that sexual immorality is the sole ground for a divorce and that if a man divorces his wife for any other ground or reason, he makes his wife commit adultery. Wow. Wow, Jesus. How is this so? How, if I divorce my wife on a ground other than sexual immorality, Say if I divorced her because she burnt my food. Or if I divorced her because I found someone prettier. I never could, by the way. But ha! Thank you. I didn't hear an amen from April, though. How would my divorcing my wife under those circumstances cause her to commit adultery? I think the answer goes something like this. Say I'm a man living in the first century in the same moment when Jesus is preaching his sermon. And for the sake of argument, say I'm a man who's been married to one woman for five or six years, and she and I are one flesh as a result of the marriage union. And then one day... I decide to divorce her for a frivolous and, in God's eyes, unjustified reason. Say she didn't braid her hair when she was out on the street. And I say, oh, that's it. The marriage is over. I want a divorce. In that case, we're not getting divorced because of any sexual immorality on either of our parts. The one flesh marital union between us is still intact. Therefore, for me to send her out, and in the first century context, for a woman to be sent out from her husband like that would make it extraordinarily difficult for her to survive from an economic and social standpoint. If I were to send her out, she would almost certainly remarry. And when she remarried, 
Since the marital union between her and I had never been justifiably broken, and yet I sent her away, in the moment when she would have sexual relations with her new husband for the first time, it would be adultery, since in God's eyes, the first marital union was never justifiably broken. The vows made in that first marriage are still in effect. That's why Jesus can say, everyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. I would argue that Jesus assumes here that the woman who is divorced frivolously by the man will remarry. And when she consummates the new marriage on the wedding night, she commits adultery because in God's eyes, the first marital union was never justifiably broken. Well, at the end of verse 32, Jesus adds the phrase, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I take this to mean whoever marries the woman spoken about in this verse. That is, because that's the context, whoever marries the woman whom a husband has sent away for some frivolous reason that was not the reason of sexual immorality, if you marry that divorced woman, when you engage in the initial sexual encounter with her, you commit adultery also because in God's reckoning, the woman's first marriage was never justifiably ended. Now, Some of you have probably noticed by now that we've sort of skipped over the phrase except on the ground of sexual immorality. Thank you. I'm kidding. (laughs) I skipped over that phrase purposely up until now because I wanted us first to try to grasp the flow of things in the verse. Again, the flow, just to remind us, the flow that Jesus gives here in this verse And we're limiting our discussion to this verse for the time being. The flow that he gives here in Matthew 5.32 is basically this. He says, men, if you divorce your wife for some frivolous reason that is not sexual immorality, then you cause both your wife when she remarries and her new husband to commit adultery the first time that they have sexual relations. And do notice, friends, notice here, men, Notice the onus that Jesus puts on men. Jonathan Pennington says this. He says, here Jesus pushes the male perpetrator of an invalid divorce to realize that he is actually the cause of his former wife's adultery, not her by virtue of forcing her into a remarriage situation when she was wrongly divorced. And we should add, friends, that over in Matthew 19.9, Jesus charges the man who divorces his wife for an invalid reason with committing adultery also himself. Didn't I tell you that today's passage was a real powder keg? (laughs) Okay, but what we're doing is we're giving Jesus a hearing here in this place. 
So now back to the question at hand. What is the actual meaning of the phrase, except on the ground of sexual immorality? According to Jesus in this verse, sexual immorality is the only legitimate permission for a valid divorce in this hard-hearted time that we live in prior to the arrival of the new creation. The original Greek word here in the text that is translated as sexual immorality in the English Standard Version, the Greek word is the word porneia. Porneia. The basic range of meaning of this word, and it's rather broad in its meaning, is this. Immorality, prostitution, fornication, unchastity, unlawful sexual intercourse. Just to give you a few examples of how various English versions have translated the word here in Matthew 5.32, we have sexual immorality in the ESV and in the NIV. We have unchastity in the Revised Standard Version and in the NRSV and in the NASV. We have fornication in the King James Version, and we have sexual unfaithfulness in the Common English Bible. It's worth pointing out, just to muddy the waters even more, it's worth pointing out that there is a separate word in Greek that translates as the word adultery. Okay? A separate word, and that is the Greek word moikeia. Jesus doesn't use the word moikeia, adultery, in Matthew 5.32, although he had that option. Instead, he uses the word porneia. And in Matthew 15.19, Jesus uses both of those words side by side, moikeia and porneia, suggesting that they have at least slightly different nuances. So what does porneia mean exactly, and how should we translate it in Matthew 5.32? Friends, it's a really hard question. And believe me when I tell you that a whole lot of ink has been spilt and trees chopped down to make paper uh, for arguments in trying to answer this question. In the end, I don't think that any of us, no matter who we are, scholar or layperson, I don't think that any of us can be completely dogmatic and absolutely 100% firm in our conclusions. My answer as to how to translate porneia in Matthew 5.32 would start by saying that I don't think we should translate the word either too narrowly, like using uh, the word adultery as a translation, But nor should we translate it too broadly, where, to quote John Stott, it would cover any and every offense which may be said in some vague sense to have a sexual basis. So not too narrowly nor too broadly in our translation. We have to try to find some sort of middle ground in our translation and in our understanding of this word as it's used here in this context. Some of the best help on this matter that I could find so far that I have found is actually from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who in 1992 wrote a position paper on divorce and remarriage and in that position paper they suggest that the word porneia here in Matthew 5.32 has to do with, quote, 
external sexual actions which would clearly break the one flesh principle of marriage between a man and woman. One more time. External sexual actions which would clearly break the one flesh principle of marriage between a man and a woman. These external sexual actions, they say, would include adultery, homosexual practice, lesbian practice, bestiality, incest, and probably also habitual, obsessive, ongoing masturbation using pornography where that action substitutes for fulfilling the conjugal rights of the spouse. They say that all of those things constitute a breaking of the one flesh union of marriage precisely, they say, because they involve sexual union with a being other than one's marriage partner, i.e., they amount to adultery. So then how to translate pornea in Matthew 5.32? Probably the best we can do is something like sexual unfaithfulness. Although even that is not a perfect translation. The basic point to get here, friends, is that Jesus is referring to sexual sins that destroy the marriage covenant. Only those transgressions in a marriage give one permission for a valid divorce, says Jesus in Matthew 5.32. But even under those circumstances, I would add, divorce is certainly not commanded. It is permitted under such circumstances, but it isn't commanded. Divorce should be the very last option only after every robust effort has been made at reconciliation. Okay. That's as much exposition of Matthew 5.32 as I want to do today. If I was a betting man, I'd bet large sums of money that right now there are a thousand questions floating around in this room having gone through this passage. All sorts of things are up for grabs here. For example, someone might be asking now, well, is sexual immorality by one of the spouses the only grounds for divorce in the Bible? To which I would answer, no, it isn't. With 1 Corinthians 7 in mind, I think you can make a strong argument that desertion or abandonment by one spouse toward the other is also a biblical ground for divorce, although even there, many Protestants would certainly disagree with me. Another question that somebody else may be asking is, well, what about domestic abuse? Does God expect a married person to stay with a spouse who is physically and or mentally abusive? And then another question that may be live right now is, well, what about the specifics of remarriage? Which partner or partners are permitted on biblical grounds to remarry under a divorce in, say, circumstance A or circumstance B or C or D? 
We don't have time this morning to answer every question that comes up on the subject of divorce and remarriage, and it wasn't my intent to do so. One thing we can say for certain, as we we work toward winding this up, the subject of divorce and remarriage, I think you'll agree, in the church is absolutely not an altogether easy subject. Would you agree with that? It's not an easy subject. As I was finishing seminary and entering into my first pastorate many moons ago, I rather naively began creating a chart on the subject of divorce and remarriage. And my purpose in creating the chart was to sort out as many possible scenarios as I could think of concerning who I would perform marriages for and who I wouldn't, based on what I read in the scriptures. Very soon I discovered, in so many of the real-life cases that I was encountering, that the nuances and the particulars involved in each case simply escaped the parameters of my chart, however well-intentioned it was. There were so many circumstances that were unforeseen by my chart, and so I abandoned my chart. My practice since then, friends, has been to approach each request for a wedding on a purely individual basis. I consider the specifics and the contours of each case. I listen as carefully as I can to the couple. I get to know their histories. I get on my knees. I search the scriptures. I consult the church board. There have been occasions where I've turned down a couple's request for me to marry them. And of course, many other times when I've been honored and happy to perform weddings. As a pastor, as a disciple, I'm trying to be faithful to Jesus and his commandments. Well, as we close this off today, and I for one say amen to that, I want to briefly direct my words here to four different groups of people or four different categories of people. The first category or group are married people who are considering divorce. I simply want to exhort you in simple terms to go the extra mile in striving to be reconciled with your spouse. Make every effort to work out reconciliation. Work extra hard, harder than you ever have. God being your helper, work at communication harder than you ever have. And do seek counsel. Very important. Seek the wisdom of people around you who love you and who desire God's will for you. And repent if necessary. And initiate peace and locate areas where change is needed and proactively work at those areas. Remember, especially, that God meant your marriage to be lifelong, a covenant never to be broken, and believe that he is merciful and that he has the power to heal your marriage. The second group of people I want to talk to just briefly are those going through a divorce. If that's you, I want to remind you that you have a God who aches with you. 
who has, I think, God does, a special sympathy for those in the throes of divorce because God himself has gone through a divorce. Yes. God likened the nation of Israel to a bride, his bride. But his bride had gone whoring, to use the biblical term, whoring after other gods. And in Jeremiah 3.8, God says there that there came a point where he sent adulterous Israel away with a decree of divorce. The covenant relationship ended and Israel was then overrun by the invading nation of Assyria. That break in the relationship between God the husband and his people, his bride, is called a divorce in Jeremiah 3.8. So I think that God has a special ache, a special empathy for those who are going through a divorce, even though divorce was never his design. God can be trusted. Amen? Lean on him in your pain. There is forgiveness found in him where you need that forgiveness. The third group I'd like to speak to are those already divorced and now seeking remarriage. I want to encourage you in your decisions to seek the counsel of loved ones and seek the counsel of close godly friends and church leaders. Make it a point to seek the guidance and to listen to the guidance of the godly community around you, even if it's guidance that you would rather not hear. It will be important for you, as Scott McKnight has put it, to live out of a fellowship with others that blesses and mentors weighty decisions in life. And then finally, to the rest of us, If and when in our lives we encounter others who are considering divorce or who are going through a divorce or who are already divorced, may I caution us to take a gospel-shaped approach to that person or persons. If you have a friend or a family member who is considering a divorce, be an agent of reconciliation. Be a peacemaker in whatever way you can. If you have a friend or family member who is already going through a divorce and it seems past the point of reconciliation, then weep with those who weep. Show them God's love in the midst of their pain. Walk with the person in their valley. And if you have a friend or family member who is already divorced and seeking remarriage, ask penetrating questions in a Christ-like way. Probe a little. Listen to the person. Encourage them to get counsel in the matter. Well, friends, all has not been said this morning concerning the matter of divorce and remarriage. May God help us all in whatever situation we may be in, and may we listen to Jesus and the apostles and heed the Lord in all things. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, your name be hallowed. You are holy, and we are not. You are eternally faithful and eternally good. You never lie. No deceit comes out of your mouth. We thank you for your purity, even in this word we've heard today. We thank you, Lord, that the Sermon on the Mount is so utterly countercultural. It challenges us on so many levels. But we thank you for giving us this pure word to guide us and help us to go with the grain of the universe that you have created. Lord, may this word penetrate our minds and hearts, and may we consider Jesus this week in all that we think and do and act and say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the Holy One, who grants pardon for sin and a peace that endures, and whose own presence guides and cheers, strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Amen.